Hey everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project with your host Mick Spears. We bring you thought-provoking guests and topics every week to challenge your thinking about leadership. Our aim is to help you become the leader that you wish you always had as we learn together and lead together. Hey everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project. I'm greatly honoured today to be joined by Mel Kettle. Mel is an internationally recognised coach, mentor, speaker, facilitator and author. She works at the intersection of communication and leadership to help senior executives, boards, business owners and leaders to create real connection and sustained engagement so that they can lead themselves and then in doing so lead aligned teams and get cultures of belonging. Mel is committed also to helping women and organizations to better understand the impact of menopause in the workplace. And if we have time, we'll touch on that today as well. She's the author of two books and the book that we'll talk about today is called Fully Connected, How Great Leaders Prioritize Themselves, Reclaim Their Energy and Find Joy. So without any further ado, Mel, please do introduce yourself to the audience. Give a little touch of your background and what led you to be on the podcast today. Oh, thanks so much, Mick. Oh, well, what led me to be on the podcast today was having an amazing opportunity to talk about my new book, Fully Connected, which I'm waving around at the moment for anybody who's looking at the video. And if you're not looking at the video, you'll have to just imagine me waving this book around. How did I get to the book? Well, I started my career a long time ago. And for the first few years of my real job, when I wasn't, you know, pulling beers or working in retail or clipping, clicking a clicker for cars that drove in through the ski tube down at Perisher and Guthaga. My first real job was organizing conferences and events. And I worked for a small business for the first three years. And then the fourth year, I worked for a major multinational that ran all the events for Microsoft in Australia. And they were both amazing jobs. I learned an enormous amount. But the year, the Microsoft year in particular, we ran 300 events in a year with a team of six. And so unsurprisingly, by the end of that year, I collapsed in a screaming heap and realized that if I didn't prioritize myself and look after myself. Nobody else was going to do that because it really wasn't anybody else's job other than mine. And so that was where sort of little nuggets of learning and education about my life started forming in my mind, which then became the book. After that year, I was 29 when I had that job, that massive job with, you know, massive budgets, huge responsibilities. And probably about three months before I turned 30, I wasn't feeling well. I hadn't been feeling well for ages. I went to see my doctor and he took my blood pressure and I'll never forget his words. He said to me, I don't know how you're walking around still. I have never seen anybody your age with blood pressure this high. If you don't make some major life changes, you'll probably have a stroke before you turn 30. And so I thought life's pretty short. I don't want to have a stroke before I turn 30. Let's do different things. Let's make different decisions. Let's take back control of my life so that I live a life that's healthy and that's happy and that helps me achieve things that I want to do. So firstly, I want to say congratulations on the success of the book and we're going to work to the book, but I I can't help but interrupt and talk about a 29-year-old who's getting told essentially that you're a ticking time bomb walking around. How did you react to that? 
It took a while for that information to sink in and there were a whole lot of other tests that had to happen in order to make sure that I wasn't going to just collapse in a screaming heap. But one of the reasons that I went to the doctor was because I'd been having chest pains fairly constantly for a couple of months and thought that's not normal and that's not good. And I'm really grateful. I had a doctor who had trained in Eastern medicine as well as in Western medicine. And so he looked at things holistically rather than just assuming that I would be prepared to take drugs. And so working with him, obviously we had Western medicine checks. So I wore one of those blood pressure monitors for 24 hours. I had ultrasounds of my heart to make sure that was healthy. And fortunately, because I was pretty young and quite healthy, the stress hadn't caused lifelong damage to my heart, which it can for so many people. And he said to me, why don't we do a lifestyle check for three months and see if we can get your blood pressure down that way rather than just immediately starting to take drugs. And so I started to make small changes in terms of what I ate, what I didn't drink, like not as much alcohol and caffeine and doing a bit more exercise. But the one thing that he said to me, which made me laugh then and makes me laugh now, is he said, go to some comedy shows, watch comedy on TV and, you know, rent some comedy videos. You know, this was in the 90s, so DVDs were just coming in. And so I took that advice because he said, when you laugh, you can't feel stress. He said, laughter and stress do not go hand in hand. And so he said, even if it's just laughter for half an hour a week or, you know, half an hour a day if you watch some funny shows on TV. He said that will make you feel better about yourself and that will start to improve your internal hormonal system that was all out of whack from the pressure of the job. And so that was such great advice. And while that was no substitute for drugs in the end, it did remind me and it constantly reminds me when I'm in stressful situations today that laughter really is one of the best medicines that we can have. Yeah, really powerful stuff there, Mel. And I've got to say that fun is one of our five fundamental human needs. I'm I'm up there with survival, love and belonging, power, the need for freedom. One of those five is fun. And sometimes we forget that, including in the workplace. Absolutely. Years ago, when I was in a government job, I moved from Sydney and Microsoft to Brisbane and having no idea what I was going to do. But I fell into this amazing government job in the Queensland state government. And one of the things that we did as a team was we talked about our core values as a team. And this was a team of about 15 people. And one of our values was fun. And so we made sure that we had as much fun as possible in the workplace. Although quite ironically, the guy in the team who was, I guess, the team clown and sort of like the court jester, was always making jokes and making us laugh. He was the one who didn't believe that fun should be a value in a workplace. It was such a disconnect from who he was and how he behaved to what he actually believed. But, you know, we all overrode him. And so we made fun one of our values. Yeah. I want to go on a little bit of a tangent here. So I'm going to applaud people that build fun into the workplace. And just listening to that story, and we're not here to do a clinical diagnosis on that individual or anything like that. As a leader, one thing to watch out for is whether people that are outward humorous, whether it's actually masking something deeper for them. And I don't know if that individual is like that, but it's just a little warning sign that sometimes the the laughter can be a coping mechanism that's covering something deeper as opposed to, hey team, you know what? Life's too short. Let's have a bit of fun today. Does that make sense, Mel? Oh, it absolutely does. And I don't know if that was the case with this particular person because he seemed to have fun outside of work as well. But I absolutely agree that it's something to look into and to consider if there are people like that in the workplace. It's like clowns who are, you know, often sad in real life. 
Robin Williams was the person that was popping into my mind. He's one of the funniest guys in history, I'll say, and yet that was masking something very deep with him, right? Yeah, I can think of a few other people like that as well who have a professional persona of being fun and filled with joy but who actually are not. I want to come back to age 29 again now and you mentioned a lot about lifestyle changes and well done. You're with us today and obviously your health is much better than it was back then. I want to ask a different question. What work style changes did you make? Oh, well, I quit that job. I went into the office. So this conversation with my doctor was probably October, November, and I'd been coming off the back of a big chunk of work and a huge number of events and spoke to my boss who just said, well, you've got to get on with it because it's your job. So the first day back in the office after Christmas, my boss said, hi, how are you? And my first words out of my mouth were, I quit. And he looked at me and said, what? And I said, oh, I didn't realize I was going to say that. And he said, did you mean it? And I said, I said it. So yes, I do mean it. So I quit that job and I moved to Queensland. I had no job when I moved. I had nowhere to live. I had one really good friend who lived in Brisbane and she put me up. I slept on a mattress under their dining table because that's the only space in the house for another body to sleep and found somewhere to live, got a great job and completely changed my life. And the job that I got was as the marketing manager of the Brisbane Festival, which is a performing arts festival in Brisbane, one of the biggest performing arts festivals in the country. And it was such a great job, but the work culture was so different for anywhere I'd ever worked at five past five there'd be nobody in the building because that five o'clock was when you went home and you'd done a solid day of work and one of the things that I loved about this job and this employer was that they valued focus and outcomes and not hours behind your desk and so that was a really good lesson for me and something that I took to future jobs and something that I maintain now I work for myself I've worked for myself for 16 years and one of the reasons I chose to go into self-employment was because I wanted to have more holidays and more breaks and have more control over the work I did, who I did it with and when I did it and how I did it. So what I'm hearing here, Mel, is that you shifted from one job that was in organisation of events and you shifted to another one that was also organisation of events. But what shifted, in my words, and I want you to expand on this, make sure I haven't misunderstood, what shifted was boundaries and focus. Absolutely. And my role also shifted. So I went from being an event manager to being a marketing manager. I had a really solid team of people with me both times, but with the second experience, the pressure from above was still quite great, but it was, my boss was more protective of her people than my boss in the other job was. And so because she was protective, I feel that I didn't see as much of the pressures as I otherwise may have, but also the whole workplace, we talk about fun. One of our values was fun. We worked really well together as a team. I was an interloper because I was new. I was new to the arts industry. I was new to Brisbane. I was new to the organization and the other people in my team had been there in the organization, in the industry and in their jobs for a long time, but they made me feel really welcomed and that made a huge difference as well. But I think the thing that for me personally is that I created really clear boundaries and I stuck to them. And it was a real lesson in you need to do what you love and you need to be clear on what you prioritize and what you value so that you can integrate that into how you live your life broadly, but especially how you live your life at work. Because you spend a lot of time at work and if you don't create boundaries there, then it can have negative impact on every other part of your life. 
So I'm hearing three things there, Mel. So I'm hearing the word boundaries again. So that's very clear. I'm hearing then prioritization. And there was an element there of your own personal values. What did you learn about your own values through this? I don't think I fully understood that I had values until after that period of time because I was young. But having said that, one of my values has always been security and stability. And when I was in my 20s, that looked like financial security and stability. So that was one reason why I worked as hard as I did, even though I didn't get paid very much in my event job because they just didn't pay a lot back then or still today. But I realized that there was no point in having financial security if I didn't have security around my health and well-being as well. And so that became a bigger priority to me. The biggest priority for me at that time though was never finding myself in a job again where I'd be stressed to the point of I actively sought out a job in the public sector so that I could have flexi time, so that I could have time off, you know, to make up for the extra hours work so that I could do things that I loved. And, you know, when I first moved to Brisbane and I finished work at five o'clock and I'd be home by 5.15 because I didn't live far from where I worked, I didn't have any hobbies. I didn't really know anybody and I didn't know what to do because I hadn't been home at that time of day ever in my working life. When I worked in hospitality, I was definitely not home at that time of day. When I worked in retail, I was studying at the same time. So if I was home at that time of day, I'd be cracking the books because of uni. And then when I worked in events, I very rarely got home before 7, 7 7.30 in the evening. And so I became addicted to neighbours because the only thing I knew what to do was turn on the TV. And fortunately, that was a very short-term addiction. For our international audience, because the majority of people that listen to the show, Mel, are in the, in the US. Neighbours is like, it's a soap opera and it's a fun soap opera, actually. It's, it's kind of, uh, Australians have fond memories of it. It's still on today, I think, right? But it's, it's one of those ones, it's kind of, you don't have to think too much when you watch it. It's a bit of light, light entertainment. All right. I want to come back to Mel as she shifts from her role at 29 and goes to Brisbane. And we've got these boundaries in place now, but we skated over something I want to go a little bit deeper on. Tell me what role Focus had in this transition. That's a really good question. I had always been brought up to believe, like my parents instilled in my brother and I, that life is short and you need to do what you love. And you need to make sure that there's elements of your job that you love. There's elements of your social life that you love, that you love the people you spend time with. And one of the things I realized on the 12-hour drive between Sydney and Brisbane was that I wasn't loving a lot of things in my life at the time. So, you know, when I decided to quit my job, not only did I quit my job and decide to move to Queensland, but I also ditched the guy that I was seeing and cut off all my hair. So, you know, there were four fairly drastic things all that happened at once. It made me realize that if I wanted to achieve, it helped me think about what my long-term future might look like and what were the goals that I had. So as well as leaving Sydney because I didn't like the life that I had in Sydney and didn't like my job, I also wanted to meet somebody who I could share my life with and I wanted to buy a house and I wanted to, you know, have hobbies and have time for hobbies. And I couldn't imagine myself doing any of those things in Sydney because I worked all the time. And if I wasn't working, I was sleeping because I didn't have any, that was all that there was time for. I was working 80 hours a week, most weeks. And so, and I couldn't afford to buy any real estate in Sydney because I wasn't earning enough money and the banks weren't prepared to lend me what was required because back then also the banks didn't lend you the enormous amount 
amounts of money that they're prepared to lend you today. And so I was really determined that I wanted those things to happen. And within about two years of moving to Brisbane, I did buy a house and I paid about the same amount of money for a three bedroom house on a good sized piece of land, a 30 minute walk from downtown Brisbane. I remember I bought that house the same time my brother and his wife bought an apartment in Sydney and I paid less for my house than they paid for their very, very small two bedroom apartment. And then a couple of years after that, I did meet someone and, you know, we've now been together for 18 years and we had the time to get to know each other in because we both had time because we weren't working ridiculous hours and we weren't filling our lives with meaningless things. And then and I also found hobbies. So, you know, they were things that I was really determined to achieve when I, in the first few years of moving to Queensland, because otherwise, what would be the point of upheaving my life that way? Can I play that back to you as a bit of a lesson and see how it sits with you? And so I'm talking to the audience when I say this, but then I want Mel, I want you to comment on it. Every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. And if you're working, and and by the way, I've been there too, by the way, Mel, I've been workaholic of all kinds of things, mostly by choice, not by demand or anything, but I've, I've had my struggles as well. But if you're working 16 to 18 hours a day, you're saying yes to that and you're saying no to relationships, you're saying no to family time, you're saying no to hobbies. And is that what you want? And that's what I'm hearing that you kind of woke up one day and went, no, that's not what I want. Absolutely. And at the time, it was what I thought I wanted it because I wanted to fast track my career as much as possible. And for all of the negative things about that time in Sydney, I learned an enormous amount and I really don't think I'd be where I am today if I hadn't gone through that experience. I met amazing people. I had incredible opportunities. My first boss was just a beautiful, beautiful woman who's still in my life and who taught me so many great things. But I think that it taught me resilience and it taught me strength, but I didn't see that at the time. It wasn't until I looked back and looking back, you know, two, three, four years after I was out of that situation that I realized the benefits of going through that. What I want to test is something else with you now, Mel, and we're dancing around this before as well. What I want to check with you, because i got a bit of a hypothesis that I want to test, but I'm going to start with this question. When you're working around the clock in the Sydney-based job versus in the Brisbane-based job, knocking off at 5 p.m. and being home by 5.15 p.m., what happened with your productivity between those two? Oh, my productivity was so much greater in the second job in Brisbane because I knew that I only was going to be in the office until five. I had a smaller number of hours because the culture of the organization was not to stay after five compared to the other job. The other job, I just lost focus in the afternoon and there was a lot of pressure. One of the symptoms of pressure and stress is that you do busy work because your brain just can't cope with doing deep work. And I know I definitely did a lot of busy work in the Sydney job. And there was a lot of busy work that needed to be done, but I spent, I wasted a lot of time because I just was, you know, you you reach a point when you're stressed that you can't think rationally and clearly and you can't make decisions. And so it's really easy to fall back into doing things that you know how to do with your eyes shut. So this is working towards two things. I want to unpack two things here. The first one is my hypothesis around Parkinson's law. So let's talk about that. So are you busy being busy or are you busy doing things that matter? That's the question. And 
Parkinson's law tells us that the work that you have fills up the time that's afforded to it. So if you're working a 16-hour day, are you really productive for 16 hours or is a lot of that stuff kind of getting stretched out and like you say, getting distracted and busy being busy, etc. versus going, right, I need to get this finished by five because I'm off to spin class or I'm off to yoga or I'm, I'm going to go home and watch Neighbours. I'm going to get it done. So tell me, tell us your thoughts. It's exactly what you've just said. You fill the hours that you believe you have. And, you know, now I run a really successful communications, leadership communications consultancy, and I work three to four days a week. And I know what I'm going to do each day. And because I live at the beach, one of my core priorities is to go to the beach every day. You know, we moved from Brisbane to Caloundra about nearly two years ago. And one of the reasons is because I said to Sean, my husband, I want to walk on the beach every day. And at the end of our first year, I estimated that I had walked on the beach on 300 days out of 365 and the only days we didn't were if the weather was just hideous or if I was traveling which I wasn't much because it was COVID or if one of us really just didn't want to but we still you know we've just spent four days at a different beach on holidays and we got home and we went straight down to Kings Beach for a walk and so I now know that okay during the week I don't really work very much on Mondays I don't really work very much on Fridays I do a little bit in Monday afternoon and Friday morning but I finish most days at 4 30 so that I can go to the beach for an hour for a walk or I might start a bit later in the mornings like I very rarely do meetings before 10 a.m daylight savings you know wreaks havoc with that because we don't have it and so we're an hour earlier than in other states but I've got really clear boundaries now about when I will work who I will work with how I will work and the hours of the day that I work and one of those boundaries is I don't ever work on a weekend unless it's a client delivery for a client that I like and then I will and I very rarely work you know after hours, after my choice of hours, there's other things that I prioritize more. Well done on setting your boundaries and working out what's most important to you. It's really strong. The second one I want to come to is the culture. So in the Sydney-based job versus the Brisbane-based job. Now, this is a lesson that keeps on coming up on the show. So I'm just going to blurt it out and say, we get the behavior that we celebrate, reward and tolerate. So if we're celebrating and rewarding the people that are working till 11 p.m. and midnight, etc., people are going to start doing it because they want to be seen in a good light, etc., etc. If we start rewarding the people people that get their job done by five o'clock and go home and watch neighbours will get that behaviour. How does that sit with you? Oh, that's so true. My husband made redundant from a job years ago. And one of the reasons he was given was because he always finished work at five o'clock and left at five past five. And he said, but my hours are 8.30 till five. I don't understand what I'm doing wrong. And what particularly galling was he was usually always in the office by 7.30. So he'd go in early because he's a morning person and to avoid the traffic. But they didn't recognize that. And partly it was because his boss was never in there before 10 and was always expecting everybody to stay as late as he was, but they couldn't start as late as he was. So it was a real disconnect. But I really believe that if you, I'm a huge believer in, as you've said, treating people fairly. One of the things that I think is fantastic about COVID is that it's given employers a much clearer understanding that a flexible workplace and hybrid working can work and that you can still be productive and that you can still get the outcomes that you want. And I also really believe, and I hope I'm right with this and that it's just not me projecting wishful thinking, but I do 
believe that organizations are becoming more aware of the benefits of focusing on outcomes as opposed to focusing on hours in the office because it doesn't matter. You can have a day in the office and achieve nothing or you can have a day in the office and smash through a huge number of things that have really positive outcomes in driving your organization forward so that they achieve their strategic intent. Yeah. Yeah. Well said, Mel. And I think that we lose sight of that a lot of the time. There are some exceptions to this. There's some jobs where attendance at a certain time is important for customer service or whatever the case may be. Absolutely. And, you know, when I was in government, I ran a media, I had a media team and I used to say to my team, I don't care what time you start and finish, you know what you need to do to get your job done. But somebody needs to be in the office Monday to Friday between 8am and 6pm because that's when the media will ring us. And I don't care who it is. And it can just be somebody who can take a message and then can call the relevant person on their phone as long as they're available. But somebody needs to be in the office. And we had two teams that alternated different work. And I said, work it out amongst yourselves. But because we had a big team of people, we had people who naturally wanted to be in the office really early. And we had people who naturally wanted to stay till six because that suited their lifestyles. But I think having that conversation with people and asking them what works for you, what do you want? Here's the parameters of what I expect in terms of both time and outcomes. What works for you? And if that doesn't work for you, then let's have a conversation about how we can make it so that it does. Because at the end of the day, as an employer, you want your workforce to turn up and do the best job that they can do. And as an employee, I don't know any employees that turn up at work going, I'm going to be the worst person I can today. Maybe there are, but I've never met them and I've never heard of them because I genuinely believe that everybody goes to work wanting to do their best. Their best might not be what you think their best should be, but that's probably because everybody has different life and different things happening. And if you don't talk to your people, you're not going to know what else they've got going on in their life. There's a big part there about getting to know your team as well. Just to let you know, those people do exist. The Gallup research tells us that there are people that are actively disengaged. I feel that being actively disengaged though is really different from deliberately turning up to be your worst person. Okay. So the Gallup research tells us that there are people that do turn up with a purposeful intent to start undermining and start looking at kind of even almost spiteful kind of undermining of people that have treated them badly, etc. But it takes a huge amount of poor treatment before that happens. So they do exist, but they're rare and it's usually through a big chain of events that led us there. I also think that if you have people like that in your organization and you let them get to that point, what does that say about you as a leader or a manager or an organization? Yeah, that's my point. It's taken a a huge amount of events that led to that. And you need to have a good hard look at the culture that you've got, the leadership that you've got at that point. Now, coming back to 29 year old Mel for a, a while, I want to build that towards what I've heard you talk a lot about, which is that you need to be able to lead yourself before you can lead others. Tell us more about that. So I really believe that you can't connect with others or lead others until you're fully connected with yourself. And being fully connected with yourself includes things like having a high level of self-awareness, which is things like understanding your values and your priorities and your strengths. It's understanding what motivates you and what drives you and what helps you take action to achieve things that you want to achieve. And then the third part of that is focusing on self-care. And the higher your level of self-awareness, the more likely you are to focus on self-care because you'll be aware that things might not quite be right with your body or your mind or your spirit. 
And what positive impact comes from that? So when a leader is able to connect with themselves, how does that impact the way they can connect with others? So to start with, you're healthier. And so like some of the foundations of self-care are getting a good night's sleep and having control over your energy levels and putting in the things that give you good energy, trying to remove as many of the things as possible that sap your energy. So it's having an awareness of what drives, of what gives you energy and what saps your energy. Because when you have more energy, you're happier, you're healthier. And when you're happier, other people around you will be happy as well. Because happiness breeds happiness, just like, you know, misery breeds company. Happy does the same. The other benefit in the workplace is that when you're happier and your team is more likely to be happy, then there'll be fewer mistakes made. There'll be fewer team misalignments or challenges and issues with the team because they'll be get along better. There'll, there'll be more trust and so they'll be more inclined to be prepared to have hard conversations and not take things personally. And then the other thing I think is that when you are fully connected, you're much more likely to be communicating with conviction. And by that, I mean, you'll have have that mix of empathy and you'll be prepared to show vulnerability and you'll have greater levels of consideration for other people around you. Now, I'm going to say that most people in the audience are with you and going, yep, I fully agree. For those that are maybe scratching their head going, what does it mean to be connected to self? How do you even start? How do you start? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the first thing that you can do to start is to just have a look at how do you feel? How do you feel right now? Do you feel happy? Do you feel scared? Do you feel stressed? Are you generally contented with life or are you not? And if there's negative elements coming out in any of those answers, then think about what is it that you could be doing so that you feel better about yourself. And that might be, I just need to get a bit more sleep or I need to have a conversation with somebody about something that's been annoying me. But the simplest things to start with are the self-care fundamentals. So are you getting enough sleep? Are you drinking enough water? Are you eating the right foods for you? Are you spending time with people who lift you? Or are you only spending time with people who drag you down? Are you doing a job that you enjoy, recognizing that there's always parts of a job that you don't love? But are you doing, and are you doing things every day that bring you joy and that make you smile? How much do you laugh? Like there's lots of things like that. And then And the other thing, obviously, is you might not know whether everything in your body and brain is working properly. So when was the last time you had a a checkup at the doctor? When was the last time you had your blood pressure taken? When was the last time you had blood tests for, you know, just to make sure that everything's ticking along as it's supposed to? And if it's been a while, and by a while I mean more than a year, then maybe it's time to just get some of those basics checked out. So the three things I heard there, Mel, were self-awareness, including emotional self-awareness, self-care, including physical and mental health, and then situational awareness. Who am I around? What, What am I doing here? How does that sit with you? Yeah. Absolutely. And as a part of that situational awareness, it's looking as well at what actions are you taking to either improve your life or otherwise. Let's unpack that. Action. Is that something that's missing? Like there's a lot of people out there that might be listening to this going, yeah, I do need to do something about this, but is the imperative word action? I don't know whether the imperative word is action or not, but I think there's a lot of people who don't have motivation and who, so an example is I have a friend who for 10 years has been saying, I'm going to buy an investment property. I want to help my future secure. And she's been saying it for 10 years and she's done absolutely nothing to make it happen. And so I said to her, I feel like you don't really want to do that because, and she's like, no, I do. And I said, well, what action are you taking? What's the driving force behind it? And she had a good driving force, but motivation, you know, motivation 
motivation might get you out of bed in the morning, but it's not going to help you achieve your goals unless you do certain things that need to be done to get there. Because you might, she, for, so for example, she's motivated to buy a house, but she wasn't motivated enough to talk to the bank, to look on realestate.com, to go and do any, make any of the hard decisions that buying an investment like that requires. I'm seeing a lot of debate in LinkedIn recently about procrastination and people almost saying that procrastination doesn't even exist, which is a funny thing to say, but I, I know why they're saying it, right? So they're trying to say, well, it's not really procrastination. It's either a lack of prioritization or a limiting belief that is holding the person back. How does that sit with you, in, whether it's about your friend or other people that say, yeah, I'm going to do this, but it never happens? I'm a big procrastinator and the queen of leaving things to the last minute. I try really hard not to be, but it's really easy to fall into that habit of not doing things that you know need to happen, whether that's, you know, going grocery shopping so that you can buy groceries to cook a healthy meal or whether it's exercising or whether it's getting, doing a piece of work that has a deadline. When I was at uni and in school, all of my assignments were always finished three minutes before I had to submit them. I think though, one of the reasons we procrastinate is because we don't see the value in what it is that we have to do or we don't have the motivation to do what needs to be done for some reason that only you will know. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you said it's not a priority. And I certainly know when I was younger, I didn't exercise because it wasn't a priority. Now I do it every day because I'm in my 50s and I can see what's the benefit of exercising on my body and my brain. And I don't like the implications of what could happen if I don't. Yeah, very good. All right. So tell us about the book. What inspired you to put all of this to pen and paper? I'd been thinking about writing this book for a really long time and some people might say I procrastinated, although I feel like I just wasn't ready because it's a really personal book. I share a lot of really personal stories in it. And my first book, The Social Association, was about how associations and nonprofits can use social media to create an online community. There wasn't a lot of personal insights and, you know, fears and emotions that went into that book. While I definitely share stories in that book, they're not as inherently or as deeply personal as the ones are in Fully Connected. And I also second guess myself a lot because I thought I'm known for this, to be an expert in communication and social media. Who am I to write a book about leadership and self-leadership? And fortunately, I had some very good people in my life who told me to get over myself, pull my head in, sit down and write. And so I did. And I'm really grateful for them because they helped me see that what I have to say is valuable. I'm grateful too. So, and I think there's a lot of people out there that probably have got a great story in their head that they've always said, yeah, I'll write a book one day. And then they get those limiting beliefs of, ah, oh, but who wants to read a book by me? I'm going to say lots of people, lots of people want to read a book from you because they learn, they learn from lived experience. Yeah. And I've been blown away by the response to the book. So the number of people who've read it, who have said really lovely things about it. And obviously some of those people are my friends, but the vast majority are people I've never met and never heard of. And I'm grateful that those people especially have forked out their hard earned money to buy my book. In the process of writing the book, what did you learn about yourself? I learned that I need a plan and I need to stick to it and I need a routine. And going back and reliving some of the things that you've been through, any new lessons emerge for you? 
There were definitely some insights from some of the things that I wrote about in the book. And there were also quite a few stories that I wrote for the first draft that didn't make it into the book because they were too deeply personal and I wasn't ready to talk about them or because they involved other people and it could have caused pain or brought up emotions in other people that were involved in some level in the story that I didn't want that responsibility for. And, you know, one of my mentors, Matt Church, says don't do therapy on the stage. And by that, he means don't share stories that you haven't fully worked through all of your emotional ramifications of. And there were a few stories that I was going to put in the book. And I just thought, no, I haven't worked out all of my emotional shit around those stories yet. So they can't go in the book. All right. So I want to come back to what you just said about don't do therapy on stage, because a lot of people saying we want people to be vulnerable on stage and share openly. But the key message I heard there, Mel, was, yeah, but make sure it's something that you've already processed that emotion and you kind of understand it before you share it. Is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. And I'm like, I share a lot of really vulnerable things on stage and in the book, but I've processed them. And, you know, there's a couple of stories that I share. Mum and dad died really close to each other 11 and 12 years ago. And I'm really open to talk about that. But sometimes I just can't because anyone who's experienced deep grief knows that sometimes it just whacks you in the face when you least expect it. And I was going to share a story about that at a keynote that I gave recently. And I was talking about the lead up, you know, leading up to it and just felt the tears prickle in the back of my eyes and went, oh shit, I can't tell this story. So I said, great into something else because you have to be, and that, because I had that level of self-awareness, I knew that, okay, I couldn't do that. But that was the first time in about three years I hadn't been able to share that story. So something had obviously triggered that emotion I hadn't thought about. But by the same time as well, it wasn't until, I don't think I publicly talked about how I felt when all of that happened for about six or seven years after they died because I hadn't processed fully what that meant to me. And so there's another speaker I know, and I'm not going to name names, but she went through, she talks about a really deeply personal thing that happened to her when her marriage broke down. And for the first, I've heard her tell these stories quite often, and it was really clear to me the first few times she shared it, she hadn't fully processed all the emotion because a lot of anger and bitterness came out when she talked about her ex. And I thought, really probably not ready to be sharing these stories yet in front of the number of people that you are particularly when there's some people in the room who've probably gone through the same thing as you. It's really interesting, Mel. It's not something I've thought of before, but you got me thinking this is a big takeaway for me for today, for sure, to think about that. Have I really processed this before I share it with someone else? Because then if I've processed it, it may have more meaning in the lesson, perhaps. And without some of the anger or whatever is attached to it at that time. Yeah, that's really interesting, Mel. Yeah. And particularly if it's a negative situation or experience that involves deep emotion, particularly deep, what's often considered a negative emotion like sadness or grief or anger or bitterness or hurt, you want to be really clear about how you feel about that and how you can share that experience so that other people can learn from it and so that you can still learn from it as well if necessary, but how you can do it in a way that makes you look professional and not unhinged. Yeah, the thing I'm thinking of is if you're in that season where you're processing it and you're still jaded and then you share that story with others, they might get jaded about the person that you're talking about or the situation that you're talking about. Whereas if you've processed it longer, you've actually found the answer or you've found the lessons because everything is a lesson in life, right? 
Absolutely. And I think that, you know, there's many ways you can process it. You could get professional help by talking to a doctor or a psychologist or a psychiatrist, or if it's not something that requires that length, that depth of support, then talk about it with friends and track your emotion. Like when you have a conversation with friends about the experience that you're wanting to share more publicly, think about after you've had that conversation, take a few minutes to reflect on how did I feel when I was sharing that story? What was my underlying emotion? Was it relief that I escaped that situation or that that's in the past or was it something else? Was it a positive feeling, a positive experience to share it or a negative experience to share it? Because when you're sharing things publicly, you want that to be a positive experience, both for you and the other people who are witnessing that sharing. And if it's not going to be, then maybe it's not the right time for you to be sharing some of those stories. Yeah, good one. All right. Well, well, thank you, Mel. I'd like to draw us to a close now. I'm going to come to our rapid fire round. These are the same questions that we ask all of our guests. And yours is interesting. I almost feel like I should change it. The question is, what's the one thing that you know now that you wish you knew when you're 20? I feel like for you, it should be, what's the one thing you know now that you wish you knew when you're 29? my answer would be a bit different. But when I was 20, I wish I'd understood boundaries because if I had understood them, I don't think I would have found myself having that conversation with my doctor at 29. And actually what was really interesting is I nearly didn't take that Microsoft job because I had planned on resigning from the company that I was working with. And I had planned on moving to Mexico for a year to learn Spanish and to travel. And then I got headhunted into this job and my ego just went, how can you say no? And within about a month, I thought I should have said no. And I also thought, but I don't know how to resign. I've only been here for a month. So the other lesson is, you know, deep in your heart, when you've made a decision, that's not right for you. And there is absolutely no shame in changing your mind after you've made that decision, particularly if it's to do with a job or a person or something that could potentially have a really detrimental impact on your world. Yeah, it's a good lesson, particularly if the rationale or the reasons you made that decision turn out to be not true, for example, right? So you make a decision based on the information that you have at hand and then it turns out that, oh, actually, that wasn't so correct. Yeah, good one. Yeah, or if you make a decision based on your ego. Yeah, and and we're all prone to do that at some point, including me. What's your favourite book? I grappled with this. I'm a huge reader and I love so many books, but I went back to my childhood and the book that I have read more than any other book is Anne of Green Gables. And I love that book so much. I was looking for my copy. I've actually got two copies. I've got no idea how that happened. And I thought I'm going to have to reread it. I haven't read it for a few years, but I love everything about the story. And there were a whole series of books that followed Anne of Green Gables, which I read as a child and loved all of them. Yeah, nice one. What's your favorite quote? Oh, Maya Angelou. I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. Yeah. I come back to that one a lot as well. It's one, it's one of my favorite quote rotates a little bit and hers uh, often comes in. Same. The other one is what you said earlier. When you said, if you say yes to something for somebody else, what are you saying no to for yourself? Paolo Coelho originally said something along those lines. I've forgotten the exact words of the quote. It's in the book though. And that as well is something that I really love. Yeah, really good. And finally, Mel, how do people get in contact with you if they'd like to know more about your books or about what you do? So my website is melkettle.com and I'm all over LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. Um, And if you just Google Mel Kettle, then you'll find me. I own the first four or five pages of Google. Well done, Mel. It's been a great pleasure talking to you today. I learned something today for sure. I know our audience will as well. So thank you so much for your time today. 
Thank you for listening to The Leadership Project at mixbeers.com. A huge call out to Faris Sadek for his video editing of all of our video content and to all of the team at TLP. Joanne Goes On, Gerald Calibo, and my amazing wife, Say Spears. I could not do this show without you. Don't forget to subscribe to the Leadership Project YouTube channel where we bring you interesting videos each and every week. And you can follow us on social, particularly on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Now, in the meantime, please do take care, look out for each other, and join us on this journey as we learn together and lead together. Thank you.